0: Welcome everyone. We're excited that you're here and uh, we're so, so blessed at Grace. It's great to be together as a family, the family of God, those of us who are on this journey of discipleship with him. To have your Bible today, I'm going to read from John's Gospel chapter 8. John's Gospel chapter 8, starting in verse 2. This is a familiar story to some of you if you've been around church, perhaps, if you've read the Gospels a bit, Uh, this is a story that is so laced, so filled, so drenched, so immersed in this amazing thing we call grace. So let me start reading John's Gospel, chapter 8, starting in verse 2. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery they made her stand before the group and said to jesus teacher this woman was caught in the act of adultery in the law of moses in the law moses commanded us to stone such women now what do you say They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first. Until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, uh, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Father, I ask that in these moments we have together that you would take your word and drive it supernaturally home to our hearts. Do what you alone can do. Make your word live in and among your people and do through us what you desire. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me set the scene for you. It's 1929. The place is Pasadena, California. If you've ever been there, you know what an idyllic little community that is right around the Rose Bowl, right around that amazing arena where the Rose Bowl is played every year on the, usually the first day of the year. And there are two teams, the best teams, many believe, in America that are pitted against each other, Georgia Tech and the University of California. And the first half of the game is, as you would imagine, hard fought. It is gritty football, but neither team has scored. It's a an incredible defensive battle, but very close to the end of the first quarter, Georgia Tech has the ball on their own 33-yard line. Play is called, snap, ball is snapped. There's the crashing of bodies, the pile up of men on the field, and suddenly, suddenly it happens. The ball squirts out of the pile. It's a fumble. A California man picks it up, and begins to run toward the goal line. At first, he seems to be going uh, as he should, but then as someone tries to tackle him, he kind of spins around and gets disoriented, and he begins to run in the other direction down the field. Graham McNamee, who is sort of the sports announcer uh, on the radio at that time, that era, so popular. He says, am I crazy? Am I crazy? Am I really seeing this? I don't believe it. I can't believe it. He's running in the wrong direction. The crowd goes wild at the spectacle of a man running in the wrong direction. As the other team sees what's happening, they start blocking for him. They start running interference and his own teammates are trying to tackle him. Now, folks, I kid you not, he's not only running in the wrong direction, he's running brilliantly in the wrong direction. <laughs> Knees high, feet wide, dodging tacklers, struggling them off. It is incredible until finally his own teammate, Benny Lam drags him down and tackles him at the one-yard line just before it's a safety. And thus, Roy Regals makes football history by being the man known as Wrong Way Regals after that. That became his nickname as he ran the ball 67 yards in the wrong direction toward the wrong goal. Now, imagine what a fool he felt. The crowd cheered, some of them booed, some laughed, but everyone was amazed at the spectacle they had seen. Roy Regals hobbled off the field, hit the bench, and then the locker room at halftime, feeling feeling like a complete failure. Now, I believe that true story about Roy Regal's running in the wrong direction is sort of a parable to us about life. So here's the deal today. Whoever you are, whatever your age or background or place in life, whatever your socioeconomic status, no matter what you may think about yourself or what your pedigree may be, listen, listen, it's as though the ball has been snapped, you've been handed the ball, and the only question is, how are you going to run? Which direction are you going to go? Now, some of you may think this is strange language to be talking about life as running on a field. But actually, this is pretty common biblical language, believe it or not. These are metaphors that the biblical writers use on a regular basis. I won't give you all of them, but, but consider just a few of the verses that the apostle Paul uses in some of his letters. For instance, 2 Timothy 4, 7. He said, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. Or how about this one from 1 Corinthians 9? Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run? but only one gets the prize. Run in such a way as to get the prize. And then I like this one from Acts chapter 20. This is, boy, this this would make a good life. If you're, you're looking for a life verse today, I'd recommend this as a candidate, as a life verse. Paul, talking to the Ephesian elders that he had spent so much time with, going from house to house, pleading, teaching, exhorting them, warning them. Very close, and there's a mournful farewell that's happening, and here's what he says. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. What a statement. If only I may finish the race and complete the task, the Lord Jesus has given me the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. You see this? In each of these verses, this idea of a race, of of running and life being compared to running a race is being used. Let me give you one more. Galatians 5 verse 7, he says to these Christians in Galatia who, who seem to be confused, they'd gotten a good start. This happens a lot, by the way. They'd gotten a good start in their Christian life, but they'd gotten confused and sidetracked along the way. That describes some of you listening to me right now. You got a great start, but you got sidetracked. Look, he said, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? So the idea of life being like a race is a common metaphor in scripture. But here's the deal. The Bible says you gotta decide which direction you're gonna go. Are you gonna run toward the right goals and the right ambitions and the right destiny? Or are you going to do something else? And here's the declaration of Scripture. Every one of us today has run in the wrong direction. Not just Roy Regals. Me, you, everyone on the planet has run in the wrong direction. And the Bible calls that sin. Now, uh, you, you, you probably hear that word a lot. And, and probably if, you're, if you've been immersed in the humanism of our culture, you probably roll your eyes when you hear that word. Sadly, it's become something that's scoffed at. And so sometimes we need a definition. Well, let's look to children to give us a definition. <laughs> children sometimes say the darndest things, right? Right? So the question was asked in a survey of children under 10 years of age, what is sin? That was the question, what is sin? Rhonda Marshall, age seven, said this, and I quote, well, kicking your brother is a little mistake, but kicking a dog is a sin. (laughs) I think she's got, yeah, yeah, theology's working there. Tanya Intrican, age six, said, a sin is what gets you into more trouble than you know what to do with. Molly Weldon, age nine. Molly, what is sin? A sin is when you disrespect the law of God. There are big sins and little sins. Like when, like when you beat up on your sisters, that's a middle-sized one. <laughs> but here's my all-time favorite. In response to the question, what is sin? David Galbreath, age six, said, well, there's these two kids down our street. Stephen and Nathan, and they're bullies, and they're bad all the time. If you want to know about sin, you ought to ask them. (laughs) I like that. I really like those responses. But Augustine of Hippo, considered by many the greatest theologian of all time, Christian theologian, said we are capable, listen, we are capable of every sin we have seen others commit unless God's grace restrains us. Boy, I hope you get that today, because some of us start thinking pretty pompously about ourselves. They're like, well, I would never do that. Don't be so sure. We're capable of every sin we've seen others commit, unless God's grace restrains us. Carl Jung, who doesn't always have the best theology, but is a respected figure nonetheless in the world of psychology. He said, all of the primitive sins are not dead, but they're crouching in the dark corners of our modern hearts, still there, and still as ghastly as ever. But when it comes to understanding what it means to run in the wrong direction, what this thing called sin is, I would say that my all-time favorite definition of sin came from John Wesley's mother, Susanna. Apparently, he had asked her, John Wesley is the great leader of the Methodist movement back in the 1700s. He died in 1791 after a long and very productive life. Scholar, a leader, an organizer par excellence. He apparently asked his mother at a tender age, mom, what is sin? And here is his mother's Reply, son, whatever weakens your reasoning, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, or takes away your relish for spiritual things. In short, if anything increases the authority and the power of the flesh over the spirit, that to you becomes sin, however good it is in itself. Wow what a definition. And so we see this principle, this power called sin at work in the various facets of our life. Don't we see it at work in marriage? Moment of honesty. Marriage is supposed to be this amazing thing that God ordained and created for a man and a woman to mirror in their relationship, the relationship of Christ to the church. God intended for the husband and wife to experience this intimate union physically, emotionally, spiritually. And some couples begin with great hopes. (coughs) But soon their dreamboat becomes a shipwreck and they're floundering. What happened? They begin to go in the wrong direction. And one day they realize, wow, instead of growing together, we seem to be growing apart. Instead of love getting deeper, it seems to be growing colder. And if we keep on this way, our marriage is not going to last even another year. We we see it in marriage. We see it in relationships. we, We see it in our own personal lives, do we not? I had such ideals, you may say. I wanted to do so much with my life, and yet... The testimony of so many that we hear over and over again. It's really the story of all of us to one way, one way or another. I started running in the wrong direction. I started this innocent little act and soon I was entrapped by a habit that was pulling me down and I've become entangled in this lifestyle and this pattern. It just feels like I'm going in the wrong direction. I'm getting further away from God instead of closer. So we need to ask the question, since that's our common experience, how far can we go with that? Roy Regals ran to within one yard of a safety. And we can do the same. We can shrug off the Holy Spirit's attempts to convict and tackle us and stop us. And many people run so far that one day they look back at their life It's one of the saddest things I ever have heard as a pastor. People in their final moments, in their final days, on their deathbed, in hospice, look back at their life and in private conversations say, Pastor, I've wasted, I've wasted my life. And some of them, some of them ran brilliantly, but they were going in the wrong direction. Well, I thank God. I thank God. There's more to the story than that. This came out later when a sports writer interviewed Roy Regals. Roy, what happened in the locker room at halftime? And he described it with poignant detail. He said, I went in. I sat all by myself, put my head in my hands, and literally sobbed. I wept. What a fool I'd made of myself. What I'd done to Coach Nib Price. What I'd done to the team in the Rose Bowl game. None of my fellow teammates even said a word to me. I heard the coach drawing on the blackboard, outlining the strategy for the second half. And then he gave a little pep talk and said, go get them and sent them out again and all was quiet, and I thought everybody had gone, but then I sensed this presence. Regal said, I sensed this presence standing beside me. I wasn't about to go back out. I wasn't about to face 50,000-plus fans in light of what I had done. I felt like an idiot. But he said, then coach put his hand on my shoulder, and he said, Roy, (laughs) game's only half over. Get back in the game. And this is the truth. Roy charged out on that field and played inspired football. Many believe, who studied his career, that it was the best game of his life. Now you say, my, what a cool story. I agree. But the cooler thing is the same thing can happen to you and me. And I believe that God is speaking to some people in this room right now. He's speaking to people listening online. He's talking to people in Latham and Saratoga and Half Moon. He's talking to folks in other states and other countries who are listening to my voice right now. And he's saying to your soul, the game is not over. I wanna forgive you. I wanna send you back in the game this is what the gospel is about. This church, this church, I agree, it's, it's awesome. This church is called Grace Fellowship. A rather bland name, might I say. I mean, I wanted to call this church The Gathering, but everybody said, the early leader said, it'll sound like a cult if you call it The Gathering the gather the gathering now 30 years later that would have been a really cool name right that would have been a really cool name but it was shot down instead we came up with grace fellowship wow that's really unique okay grace fellowship but don't despise the grace part cuz that's about the best word in the language when you really understand grace and that you've been running in the wrong direction, but our almighty coach says, yep, you blew it there. It's real. Don't wanna sugarcoat that, but the game's only half over and he sends us back in with his power and his presence and his guidance to live a victorious life, folks. It did not get any better than that. And you've got people, in case you don't know this, you've got people sitting around you right now who could stand up and tell their own story of running in the wrong direction and how God's amazing grace set them on a whole new trajectory in their life. It is just incredible. That's what God's church is all about. It's not about perfect people. It's not about people who've got their act all together. It's about a bunch of folks who've blown it big time in all kinds of ways. But grace, grace entered the story. God put us back in the game and he said, the game's only half over. Now let's apply this, let's apply this to the story that we read at the start. This woman, she's spinning out of control morally. She'd broken the law of God, the law of man, and basically she's going in the wrong direction. And the Old Testament law said that the wages of sin is death. And these pompous, arrogant religious leaders have think they've trapped Jesus in this situation. Lord, here's this woman caught in the very act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her to death for her sin. Jesus, what do you say? The trap was laid well. If Jesus said, go ahead and stone her, he'd have been in trouble with the Roman authorities because only they had authority over executions. If he'd said, don't stone her, then the Pharisees would have said, Jesus, what's wrong with you? You're going against the greatest of the prophets, Moses? You're going against the Bible, the word of God? The trap was carefully laid. What is he gonna do? Jesus looked at these pious Pharisees, poised like piranha, ready to rip and eat him apart. And he essentially said this, question, you ever run in the wrong direction? Send? Okay, whoever hasn't, be my guest. You strike her first. And of course, they left because they too had felt the shame of running in the wrong direction. And then Jesus looked at this dejected player who just like Roy Regals in a Rose Bowl locker room in 1929 was waiting for words of condemnation to fall, just like Regals. She was waiting to hear what a fool she was. What's the matter with her? How could she be so stupid? But instead she heard these words, where are your accusers? They're all gone. Neither do I condemn you. And then like the master coach, Jesus said, the game's only half over for you, young lady. Get back in the game. Go now and leave your life of sin. Has that kind, listen, has that kind of injection of grace ever happened to you? It can today. it all starts by admitting you're going in the wrong direction. The Bible word for that is repentance. The Bible uses that word quite a bit. Here's what it means. It literally, literally means to stop going in the wrong direction, turn and start going in the right direction. That's what repentance means. Are you willing to do that today? Are you willing to receive the forgiveness of God and begin to live the abundant life? If that's you, I wanna be real clear on a few realities about this because there's some things, so much confusion around this. There's some things forgiveness changes and some things it doesn't. So let's mention two things that forgiveness does not change. Number one, forgiveness does not change the past. Roy Regals ran 67 yards in the wrong direction. That is a fact of history. You can't go back and relive the first half. You can't punch the rewind button and hope that the play will be different. The record stands. Forgiveness does not change the record of the past. You and I can't go back and relive that moment when we lost our temper. You can't somehow go and undo that moment when sexual passion skewed your normally sound judgment. You cannot unscramble eggs. What's done is done. It doesn't change the past. Second, forgiveness does not change the principles of the game. After being forgiven, you go back and play the, on the same field, the same rules. Coach Nib Price could have said, now, look, Roy, I, I know you've had a rough half here, <laughs> and you're really getting beaten up down there in the trenches. I mean, I know it's been a hard game for you, and then you're blunder. I mean, come on. Listen, Roy, let's just make a deal here. If you go back out on that field and you happen to get the ball again, hey, buddy, You can run any direction you want to. Whatever you feel like will be fine. You're special. You're exempt. The rules don't apply to you anymore. No, 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 no. Same rules. You go back in the same field, same job, same crowd, same business, same family life. The rules have not changed. You say, well, what good is it then? If it doesn't change the past and it doesn't change the principles of the game, what is forgiveness good for? Glad you ask. Two things that forgiveness does change. Number one, forgiveness does change the person. As I alluded earlier, boy, if you wanted testimony about this, <laughs> You could just tap on the shoulder scores and scores of people sitting around you today, and they would gladly give testimony to this point that forgiveness changes the person. Since it started in London in 1985 and then appeared in the U.S. on Broadway in March of 1987, thousands and thousands, thousands and millions and millions of people in the Western world have watched in one form or another Les Miserables. This musical comes from Victor Hugo's sprawling novel. It recounts the story of a man named Jean Valjean, this French prisoner who is hounded and ultimately transformed by forgiveness. Here's the story, in case you haven't seen it. Valjean served a 19-year term of hard labor for stealing a piece of bread. He entered the French penal system as an impressionable young man, and he emerged 19 years later as a hardened convict. No one could beat Jean Valjean in a fistfight. No one could break his will, but after serving his term, he was set free. Convicts in those days, had to carry identity cards around their necks many times or on their person. And no innkeeper would let a dangerous felon like Jean Valjean spend the night. And so four days, he wandered the village roads seeking shelter until finally a kindly bishop had mercy on him. And that night, Jean Valjean lay still in a comfortable bed until the bishop And his sister had drifted off to sleep. He rose, he rummaged through the cupboard for the family silver, and he crept off into the darkness. The next morning, the police knocked on the bishop's door. They had Jean Valjean in tow. They had found the convict running away with the stolen silver in his pack. And they were ready, whoo! They were ready to put this scoundrel in chains for life. But the bishop, the bishop did the very opposite of what the police or Jean Valjean expected. The bishop took a gamble on grace. Ah, so here you are," he cried to Valjean. "I'm delighted to see you. Have you forgotten that I gave you the candlesticks as well? They're silver, like the rest, you know, and worth a good two hundred francs. Did did you did you forget to take them?" Jean Valjean's eyes had widened. He was now staring at the old man with an expression that no words could capture. Oh, Valjean is no thief, the bishop assured the police. This silver was my gift to him. When he had finally convinced the police and they had withdrawn, the bishop gave the candlesticks to his guest and he looked him in the eye. Valjean was now trembling before him. He said, do not forget. Do not ever forget but you have promised me to use the money to make yourself an honest man. And the power of this bishop's one act, defying every human instinct for revenge, changed Jean Valjean's life forever. It melted the defenses of his soul. He kept this candlestick as a memento and dedicated himself to helping other people in need. He had had a soul transformation. Grace is a powerful thing. It has the power to change a person's life. Yes, go back home, go back to your job, back to your school, back on the field of battle, back to your classroom, but now you have the power to win. And finally, forgiveness also changes the person's Perspective. Their perspective. Who's Regal's playing for in the first half? Himself. I want to go to the pros. I want to make a name for myself. I want everyone to know who I am. Who's he playing for in the second half? Coach Price. What's everybody to know? What an amazing coach he has who gave him such grace, a second chance. Listen, when you receive God's gift of eternal life, his offer of forgiveness, here's what happens. No longer about you. You live the rest of your life. It's like this. Your rest of your life is like a PS saying, thank you, God for what you've done for me. You don't want to glorify yourself. You want him to get the credit. You want God to be glorified. So where does the abundant life begin? It begins with forgiveness. Right there in the quietness of that locker room, on the bench, all by yourself, in the privacy of the chair where you're sitting right now, just like Roy Regal's and you're saying, I've surely blown it. Perhaps you've made an utter mess of your life, honestly, but you've certainly gone in the wrong direction. Surely I deserve to be disqualified from this game of life, but in the quietness and solemnity of this moment, a moment when you know words of condemnation could be falling, just like the adulterous woman, just like Roy Regals, just like Jean Valjean. Could you receive these words from the mouth of Jesus today? Neither do I condemn you. The game's only half over. Get back in the game. Would you join me in a, in a sacred moment of prayer right now? Father, I thank you that the power of your grace, it blows all the circuits in in our soul. We can't fathom grace so free, so amazing, so divine. We, We can't wrap our brains around it. It unnerves us that when we deserve one thing, you would give us grace Forgiveness. So, Father, I ask that in this moment, not a word from your word would be lost on everyone listening. In this quiet moment, I challenge you, ma'am, sir, I challenge you, young person, as God has spoken to your heart through his word today, in the quietness of that locker room, right on the bench, right in the chair where you're sitting now, would you make it an altar to God? Would you receive his grace right now? I'm telling you, it'll change you. I'm telling you, it will set you on a new path. It'll give you a whole new perspective. Your whole life will be lived differently for a whole different reason. For the glory of God. Would you receive his grace right now? It starts with repentance. Say, God, I repent, I'm sorry for running in the wrong direction, breaking your laws, going against your values, doing my own thing. Please forgive me. I yield my life to you right now. Surrender it to you. My will, my way, my future, my present. Please forgive me. Put me back in the game, forgiven, free, changed. Hallelujah. Thank you for the power of grace, Father. When the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's continue in worship today.